right, so uh, we've been going through the book of Isaiah, and we were in Isaiah 58 as we took a look at what God commands from fasting. And uh, that was a, a verse that I, I touched on last week. It was one that uh, ministered to me. I pray ministered to you. A number of folks commented and were encouraged by it. And it seems as though we're jumping pretty rapidly from 58 to 61, but we're going to cover uh, a portion of the, of the passages in between. Uh, 58 is, is where they, they call it the, uh, the, the comfort of the, uh, the servant's song. So as we're going through each of these passages of Isaiah, this fifth stanza of the servant's song is bringing comfort. And Isaiah 58, the Lord says, this is the fast that I require. And he lays it out as we covered it in the previous week. And then in 59, he hammers them. And we're going to take a look at one of those aspects. And then in, uh, and then in 60, he even outlines another aspect that is troubling to them. And then in 61, he returns to this beautiful passage that we're going to read. And interestingly enough, what we're going to read is also quoted in Luke chapter 4, spoken by the mouth of Jesus himself in Luke chapter 4. And so would you please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord? We're going to pick up Isaiah 61, and I'm going to read the first three verses. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor, and he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then that comma is where Luke 4 stops, but we'll continue reading of Isaiah 61. In the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, and to give them Beauty for ashes and the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called the trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. God, thank you for your word and Holy Spirit, lead us into all truth. We thank you for this comfort of the servant song of Isaiah. And Lord, as we examine it, I pray that you would open our eyes and comfort our hearts, equip us and bless us that we would serve you. Thank you for this fellowship. Thank you, Lord, for these men and women who are faithful to step into the service of this nation and their willingness to say, I seek your consent and I seek to serve you. Lord, bless them and protect them in this campaign season. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please have a seat. It was an interesting uh, week uh, last week as we uh, finished up in... Isaiah 58, uh, that evening I drove to uh, Fresno, California, and I was uh, given the privilege to emcee one of our California renewal events in, in Fresno. Um, about a little over 200 people attended, and uh, we had a chance to introduce uh, pastors and their wives to uh, a number of candidates who took us up on it. Like we do here at the church, all candidates are invited. Uh, some responded, some didn't. And we're trying to get folks engaged in the process, uh, representative form of government and, and the consent of the governed, trying to get pastors to realize that they have a role. And one of the things that I, I'll, I'll allude to, and we'll get to it, is when it says the consent of the governed, we the people, and you're the sovereign, every sovereign, as we've covered, has a counselor. Every sovereign has a counselor. You know, in the Lord of the Rings, when the man's falling asleep, the king's falling asleep, and the one counselor is telling him to remain asleep and remain asleep, don't worry, you don't need to do anything. And the other counselor's saying, wake up, lead your people, lead your people. There's counselors. Some people are self-indulgent counselors. Others are for the purpose of of the well-being of the people. 
So every, every king has a counselor. It used to be that the pulpits in America were where you would come as the sovereign to get your counsel. It's our responsibility. And matter of fact, on the East Coast, all the roads were very weird and discombobulated because the center of the community was always the church. Here in the West, we have the grid outline, and that's how we've done it. But the church was always the center of the community where you'd come to, in a sense, get your voter guide. And so with that being said, we were in Fresno, and we were talking to these pastors. We had a chance to bring some of the folks like we did today up forward to pray for them. And uh, we had a gubernatorial candidate. We had some congressional candidates. We had local candidates. We brought them forward. The pastors prayed for them. And in the process of that, as we finished the event in Fresno on Tuesday, uh, we uh, drove back and made it to the council meeting Tuesday night. A number of you, I told you I was going to go to the Eric Metaxas event at the Reagan Library, only realized I had a city council meeting. It's the only thing on my schedule I can never change. And I went to the city council meeting while you all went to go hear Eric Metaxas. And I know you did because Eric Metaxas and John Highbush from the director of the Reagan uh, Library, they both said that the turnout from Godspeak was amazing. And they said, we'll do more events like that because of the turnout that you guys. So first of all, thank you. I was invited to go to dinner that night after the council meeting to uh, have time with John Highbush and Eric Metaxas and to hear the, 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 the way in which there's a renewal happening in America of people waking up to see this golden triangle of virtue, faith, and freedom that the, the three are synonymous. And so as this is starting to come together in Eric Metaxas' book, uh, What Kind of Government Have You Given Us? A, a Republic If You Can Keep It is the title of the book. It's what a woman said to Benjamin Franklin coming out of the Constitutional Convention. He said, I've, we've given you a republic if you can keep it. And he took them through. And you guys were there and you, you studied and learned that. So that was Tuesday night, Wednesday, uh, taught here at the church and then drove to Riverside for a yet another pastor's event. And that was fascinating, and just to see how God was moving. And it, there's, there's an awakening happening in California. And it's very exciting to me, and I'm thrilled by it. We have two diverging roads. Some look at this as a, a, you know, a secular progressive and that uh, government uh, that that's, doesn't need God in the equation. And another, a constitutional republic where John Adams would say that only a moral people can govern a republic. And we're, we're looking at these things. Are we going to a theocracy? Are we doing dominionism? I hear all the terms processing through it. It's a very fascinating picture. And no, I don't believe that, that we're following dominionism, even though we're labeled as that. I don't believe we're following a theocracy. I, I'm, I'm looking at what's happening, and it's very exciting. People are re-engaging in a constitutional republic. They're starting to take responsibility for it. I'm thrilled by that. And, and as we come to this, this is one of the things that hit me. Sensing a move of people awakening to this great privilege of a constitutional republic. Not the, it's not a perfect form of government, but it's the best the world's ever known. And watching people awaken to it, this is what hit me as I started to go through this study. Yes, we're reading Isaiah 61, but, but we finished 58, we jumped to 61. What's in 59? Well, 59, the very first verse, after he finishes, this is the fast that I desire. And he lays it out very clearly. And, and, and I, I walk through that fast. As you know, 14 days, water only, and, and it was the easiest thing I've ever done fast-related because I was called into it. And as I said before, love isn't a big enough word to describe how I feel about food. (laughs) I did not do a 14-day water-only fast because of my ability. It was one of the most amazing experiences of my life, and I knew what it was. It was this idea of aligning to see him move because there's just no way to turn this, this battleship around. 
Bombs being sent to ex-officials, uh, a, a synagogue being, you know, attacked and, and 11 people being massacred. And the tension in this country, one of the things I was burdened by was, was contrasting 1968 with 2018. 68, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is shot. Bobby Kennedy is shot. The My Lai Massacre in 68. The Kent State shooting in 69. John F. Kennedy shot in 63. The disillusionment in America and the, and the division. And, and we think 2018 is bad. It pales in comparison to, to 1968. And we, we look and we say, how did, that na- how did we as a nation survive that? We look at it and we think, we go to 1960, and you come home and you're the head of a household, and your wife greets you at the table, you know, greets you with dinner's ready, and the kids are seated. You finish dinner and you sit down to watch Leave It to Beaver or Ozzie and Harriet. The kids have all done their homework. You, you, you don't let them stay up late, and there's not a lot on the television. There's no video games. They're all reading. They're all very knowledgeable. You're all church going. You fall asleep watching the show while your children are watching it, and, and you have a nightmare. You awaken where, where there's, there's nudity on general television, and, and there's, there's, there's dysfunction and dysphoria with, with sexual identity, and, and, and there's murder, and there's rape being depicted on television, and, and you're celebrating violence, and, and brutal octagon, and people beating the tar out of each other, and, and you're shocked, and you're stunned. What has happened? It's a nightmare, only to realize it's 2018. You, you, you awaken back in 1960. Oh, oh, that can never happen in America, and not to say that 1960 was perfect, because it was a mess segregation-wise. And we had to go through a, a, a painful warp and woof ripping apart to, to reestablish this, watching a man shot on the balcony of a Memphis hotel. Watching a president get a bullet to the back of his head while his wife is cradling his head in, in the presidential limousine going through Dallas. Watching Bobby Kennedy shot in, in, a, in a hotel here in California. Seeing the images of our, of, our, of our young men and women coming back in body bags from Vietnam. Seeing the protests. But the nation survived it. This is when Calvary Chapel started in 68 and it started to explode. 10,000% growth as Chuck Smith pulled away from the four square churches, started Calvary Chapel. We exploded. 10,000% growth. 1,800 Calvary Chapels around the world. Two of the 10 largest churches in America. Calvary Chapel. South of Van Nuys. 350 Calvary Chapels. And you look at that and you think, how has it affected California? In 68, the fifth largest GDP, and now we're the sixth or the seventh. In 68, Reagan was governor. Our schools were the best in the country. Amazing. Here we are 50 years later, and, and, and what has happened? Our schools are the 48th in the country. Our taxes are just through the roof. And you, you, you ponder that. And so when God says he calls us to a fast, I was burdened. I was praying for officials. And when I finished that, God took me very clearly that week into this passage of Isaiah 59. He says, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened 
that it cannot save, nor is ear heavy that it cannot hear. I was comforted by that. Oh, we are in a tough time. Yes. This has been a week that I would just assume not have happened. It doesn't matter where you fall in the political landscape. We're all disgusted by it. What, what's happening? God, behold, your hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor your ear heavy that it cannot hear. Lord, you hear our cry. And God says to me, and this is what he put on my heart, and it's interesting, look at it. The second portion, it says, but your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear, for your hands are defiled with bloodshed? Bloodshed? Well, this is the birthplace of the megachurch. Calvary Chapel started here. Saddleback. Massive churches. Look at the real estate we own. Look at the Christian bookstores and the Christian radio stations and the, and the Christian colleges and universities and, and seminaries. Well, look how fantastic this is. 50 years we've been making our mark. This is where Focus on the Family started. Yes. And as a state, we lead the nation in abortion. Uh-oh. Oh, there you go with that word. It's bloodshed. This is, this is not how you grow a church, Pastor. You've got to stay away from that stuff. You don't grow a church that way. I agree. Jesus even said to the disciples, aren't you offended? Why don't you leave? And it was Peter who said, where will we go? You alone have the words of life. The idea is, this is a baby. God says it's, this child has been fearfully and wonderfully made, knitted together in its mother's womb. In California, we have killed more unborn children than the entire population of Canada. California. That, that doesn't phase anybody. I mean, we've, we've checked out. I just don't buy that. It's not a human being. Well, it's interesting. It's not a human being, but we would sell its parts to humans. I know everyone's been affected by it, including my family. We've all been affected. I'm not up here to condemn. I'm up here to agree with the Lord. What do you want us to do? And the Lord says, though your sins are as scarlet, they've been washed as white as snow. I just want you to acknowledge this has to change as my people. Agree with me, God says. Agree with me. 1960 to 2018, doubled the divorce rate, tripled the teen suicide rate. I mean, the, the things that we've experienced, uh, quintupled the prison population, 60 million babies aborted. Isaiah 59, it's, 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 58's a great fast, 59 is a rude awakening. 
Then the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness, it sustained him. Paul will quote out of this later in Ephesians chapter 4, 5, and 6 with the armor of God. But in relation to this, it displeased the Lord. There was no justice. We talk about social justice. What is social justice? The last time I checked, there's justice. Social justice is 51% or 50.5% of you agree that Jews must be killed and 49.5% say no. So social justice is let's kill Jews. That, that, this is a constitutional republic. You don't do that here. Justice is what God says, not what man says. There's, there's a standard. And it's this idea, do we recognize it? Or do we make our own? What does God say? Now, it's unpopular. I understand that. Folks don't want to believe in the inerrancy of the scriptures. They don't want to believe that it's an authoritative. And my question is, then what is your authority? What is your standard? It's worked for thousands of years. It's been remarkable throughout Western Europe and coming to the United States. The greatest industrial revolution, the greatest expanse, the most amazing accomplishments, and the greatest form of government, especially as you look at the Geneva Bible with all the civil government and the commentaries that the pilgrims came over with. It is such an experiment in liberty. But God is simply pointing out that this displeases me that there is no justice. There wasn't a man, so I wondered where there was an, an intercessor. There was none. So my own arm brought salvation. And his righteousness is sustained in him. You see, this is a picture of the Messiah. The idea that there are none righteous, no, not one. Everyone in the room has failed. This isn't a perfect form of government, I agree. America has issues, no doubt. But we survived a civil war. We survived civil rights being established in a nation that was segregated beyond measure. Child labor laws were instilled. Women's suffrage. Where did those come from? It wasn't, it wasn't the secular progressive who gave those to us. It was Christian pastors, do your homework. It's God's people saying this is an injustice. And we look out at the landscape of California and God lays it out and he says, let's do something about it. He says, though your sins were as scarlet, I'll wash you as white as snow. Forget what is behind, strive for what is ahead. My righteous right hand will uphold you. I will be your salvation. That's called justification. He imputes his righteousness to our account. We're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Nobody in this room is better than anyone else based on what you do or don't do. We're only considered righteous because of what Christ did. That's pretty humbling. And if he served us and laid his life down, we should serve humanity. That's why I commend these public servants, because they step into the fray to say, I want to serve. And it's a blessing. And when this happens and our heart realizes the salvation of the Lord in Isaiah 59, even though we see these scenes and we acknowledge it to the Lord, he cleanses us, we agree with him, and he restores us. And in that restoration and agreeing with him, and that's what repentance is, just agreeing with God, 
If that offends you that I showed these statistics to you, if that offends you, I can show you some that will really offend you, and then the previous ones won't be as bad. (laughs) But if we can all simply say, you know what? Guilty. God says, now I can work with you. When we're honest with God, he's merciful with us. And he does an amazing work in our life. Here, my God, use me. And then this hits, and I love it. Isaiah 60. Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Out of nowhere, this comes and establishes itself upon our lives. This this blessing of the Lord, he shines upon us through salvation. We have received forgiveness. We have received his mercy. We have received his grace. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. He calls us out of this world where we Our sins were as scarlet, we've been washed as white as snow, and then he allows us to go in and shine forth this salvation and to establish this on the earth and to minister to others. And in doing that and in yielding, going through this fast, aligning our heart with God, confessing our sins, sensing his righteousness as it declares in Isaiah 59, and then coming to this place where he says, now with my spirit upon you, arise and shine for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Boom. This is exciting for California. This is exciting for this fellowship because it brings us to the verse that we began with and we'll close with. Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. To preach good tidings to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison door to those who are bound. It's pretty amazing. He says to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, comma, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, comma. We're living in a comma right now, not coma, comma. The comma is this. This is grace. Mercy triumphs over judgment. He has given us justification by faith. He's had mercy on us. We've agreed with him. He's, he's, he's allowed us to repent. He's, he's put it in front of us. It's yours. Now go forth and shine. Let the glory of the Lord rise upon you. Comma. And then he says, and the day of vengeance of our God will come. But right now, this is grace and this is mercy and this is the opportunity to, to love and to bless and to reach this state. To be used of God. And what happens when we yield to the Lord, when the spirit of the Lord is upon us and he anoints us to preach good tidings to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound? I was so touched. It was one of the highlights for me of this past week. We were in Fresno. And I had the privilege to emcee the event And there was one point in particular that the Spirit of the Lord was so present and and touched me deeply. It was a a person I'd never met, and I had the privilege to introduce them. They were running for office, similar to what we did today. And I had the privilege to introduce them to these pastors. They didn't get a chance to speak, but the pastors gathered around to pray for them. Her name was Elizabeth Hang. She's running for a congressional seat up in Central California. She's yay big. She's 33 years old. She... Her opponent has been in office longer than she's been alive. Her heritage is Cambodian. Her mom and dad survived the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia where 1.6 million people were 
annihilated. They were killed, brutally butchered in a socialist, communist country. They had one place to flee. It was America. They came here with nothing. They sought political asylum, which is five ways you can do that for legal immigration into the United States. They could not go back without certain death. And as they came to this country, having lost 1.6 million of their countrymen, having lost their country, basically, they came to America. I was, I was mesmerized by this woman. She was, she was a powerhouse. She was 33 years young, not married, committed to, to serving her community, stepping against a giant who served in office. Her parents came with nothing. She ended up graduating from Stanford University, president of the Stanford student body. A remarkable young lady. And as I looked at her and I was prepared to introduce her, I was overcome by a memory of my mom and dad. This idea of loosing these bonds, this idea of God calling us to a place where we preach good tidings to the poor and to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. I was 11 years old in 1975. My father was a naval officer, a captain. He said, Rob, get in the car. We're going to go for a ride. I drove with my dad north from Coronado down Highway 5 to Camp Pendleton. Crossed through the gate with a crisp salute from a Marine corporal with simple directions to a location as we drove through the vast wilderness of Camp Pendleton. We arrived to a valley in Camp Pendleton that was, as far as the eye could see, tents, set up tents. It was a tent city. I didn't know what it was. My dad parked. We got out of the car as we approached the information kiosk. There another corporal saluted my father. My dad gave him a name, Major Nguyen. I didn't know what was happening at 11, but the man went through a series of files, found the name, gave him the location of the tent in this sea of tents. And my dad and I went off on an adventure to go find this specific location. When we got there, Major Nguyen came out and greeted my father with a salute. He then introduced him to his newlywed, his newlywed wife, his his bride, She didn't speak any English as Major Nguyen did. She didn't speak any English. And she was from a rural village in Vietnam. And as Saigon had fallen and they had lost their country, they needed a sponsor. My dad looked at me and he said, this is your brother and your sister. They're coming home with us. We got in the car and Major Nguyen sat in the front seat with my father. And they talked in English while Mrs. Nguyen was in the back. And we just smiled at each other. I remember when we got to the house, my mom, before she went to be with the Lord, and I think the Lord has employed her up there to keep the place really, really sparkling. My mom was a stickler that if she vacuumed the carpet and the vacuum lines were in it, you had to fly from one room to the next. We had just gotten new carpet in the kitchen of this home in Coronado, and and my mother is a woman that does not tolerate fried anything. 
the smell of burnt grease or oil in the house was just atrocious to her. And I remember coming home from school late one afternoon smelling frying fish in the house. Fried food, let alone fish. Whoever's doing it has to be dead. And as I came in the house, there was Mrs. Nguyen and she was frying fish in the pan. And I thought, oh, my mom is going to kill you. But only stunned to see my mom quiet as Mrs. Nguyen is cooking. And I'll never forget, it caught fire. And as a woman who lives in a rural village, the first thing you do when there's a grease fire is throw it into the dirt, which she did, and it landed on the carpet. And we put it out. And my mom, I thought, oh my goodness, you're going to die. And my mom did nothing. I said, mom... Why didn't you get angry? She said, Rob, they lost their country. That's just burned carpet. I saw Elizabeth in the front as I was sharing that story. She's weeping because she gets it. She knows what a great country this is. These folks were, they were captive. They were losing their countrymen. People were dying. They came to a place that has the idea of liberty, the idea of freedom that comes from scriptures. It's not man designed. It's heavenly in its descriptions. I remember walking Mrs. Nguyen to the tailor and having to interview for her because she didn't speak English. She got the job, and I'd walk her to and from work, and we learned to speak together, and, 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 and we, we grew close. And then they ended up moving out and getting a place and starting a business, and their kids got doctorates, and amazing, each and every one. And when a child would be born, they'd call my mother, and they'd ask her to name the child. And when my mom died, they were all there at the funeral. When my dad died, they were all there. This is America. This is the idea of this picture that the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound. This is not a man-made statement. This is a God-inspired text that changes the world. This is liberty. This is the God we serve. But until we acknowledge that we have blood on our hands, we've just failed and say, God, forgive me. He does. But no more apathy, no more complacency. I concluded the fast and the time this week going back and forth with two thoughts. One is, this should not be an exception to have people come and speak seeking the consent of the governed in a church. This should be the rule. It should be done across the country. This is a great gift we've been given. And the second thing that came to my heart was, what an amazing church this is that you would afford this to the community, though you would be ridiculed and mocked. 
You don't tire of it. To the contrary, you encourage it. And I, I, I was looking at these pastors, each one coming up going, how is that possible? And I think, because this is a prototype. These folks are amazing. This is a hub to encourage people. And, and you're, you're that. And what is done across the state, let alone how it's encouraged these folks. I thought to myself, November 6th, I would do you a disservice if we didn't do this. November 6th, we are going to be in this sanctuary at 6 o'clock on November 6th, and we will be praying. I'll tell you a quick way to clear a church. Call for a prayer meeting. But I said this to pastors. If I offered you a free trip to Israel but it fell on Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, you wouldn't take me up on it. Those, that's, that's the bread and butter of the church. I, you, we can't miss those Sundays. Well, wouldn't it be remarkable across the country if every congregation in America couldn't miss the, two, the first Tuesday in November because the church was so invested in this consent of the governed and, and being a counselor to the king and, and encouraging the community that we had such a heart to set captives free and heal the brokenhearted that on November 6th or the first Tuesday of November, we're not going anywhere. We're praying. That will be revival in America.